And that was the second tranche of dollars distributed in the CARES Act. And it was called the high impact distribution. And a lot of people don't know about that. If your hospital hit the threshold of 161 COVID-19 patients, having nothing to do with death, just simply having COVID-19 as one of the diagnoses on the discharge summary. If your hospital was hitting 161 patients, then they were paid approximately $77,000 per patient up to the number of patients that were involved. And it would clearly be above 161 or they would not be participating in that dollar distribution. So they would receive the payment they got from the insurance company. And then in addition, they would receive, I believe it was $77,000 per patient. So if you had 200 patients, you multiply 200 patients times $77,000. That means you're at $15 million for that hospital system. Ready to live at the higher vibrations where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, it's Robin Openshaw and welcome back to The Vibe Show. I've been trying to track down Dr. Scott Jensen for a while now and I feel very blessed to have him on the show today. Uh, He is a family physician in Minnesota. He served as a state senator. His wife's a veterinarian. All three of his kids are doctors and lawyers. And Dr. Jensen, welcome to The Vibe Show. Well, Robin, thank you for having me on. You you know, a lot of people are jumping into the fight, the fight for medical freedom, the fight for our First Amendment rights, um, good old-fashioned conservative Christian values, the right to make choices about our own body. I can't believe that in my lifetime we're even we're even staring down the barrel of this gun. But here we are. You were one of the first, though, and somehow you've survived the uh the Facebook purges. Somehow I'm still standing too. What was it like for you to be so early? But what what sort of woke you up to something's really wrong here? Because you were out there so early saying something's really wrong here. Thank you, Robin. That's kind of you to say. But in full disclosure, I have to share with you that I didn't see myself as some early reporter or whistleblower. I just... I've always been a bit of a skeptical person, and I think skepticism is a good thing to have when you're a doctor because some of the things that we're encouraged to do turn out to be bad ideas, and many of the things that we we learn are good ideas. But I think I've always been skeptical. My father was an attorney and a judge, and so my basic nature is to wonder. I've probably been one of the few doctors that tells patients that they should understand what NNT stands for, which is number needed to treat. Because I think that if a patient's going to be put on a medicine, they might want to know how many people that receive this medicine are going to also receive the hoped for result. Just a quick example. If you take all the people that I see with strep throat and put them on penicillin, the number needed to treat for one person to get the benefit that we're hoping for is usually one because virtually everybody does well with penicillin for strep. But on the other hand, if I put 50 people on Lipitor for cholesterol, how many people might achieve that objective of having been spared a heart attack 
It's not 50 out of 50. It's usually one out of 50. So that means the number needed to treat for a statin drug like Lipitor to prevent a heart attack in a 10-year time frame for a 50-year-old person would be, the number needed to treat would be 50. That's partly why we stopped using aspirin regularly every day for people over the age of 40. We used to recommend it to everybody. Number needed to treat, though, when we actually studied it to prevent a heart attack was about 1,000, which means that we need to treat 1,000 people for 10 years in order to prevent one heart attack. So we stopped recommending it because along the way to get to that 1,000, we were causing stomach bleeding. So let's get back to your question. I'm a skeptical person. And I saw the Department of Health in Minnesota and the CDC tell us to change the way we were doing death certificates. And I read the document and I said, well, this isn't what we want to do. We're going to be corrupting the mechanism whereby we record the underlying cause of death. And, and that's really the big, the big, if you will, definition, not the immediate cause of death. The immediate cause of death might be uh, a sudden cardiac arrhythmia in a person that is already on hospice with end-stage congestive heart failure. You wouldn't want to call that cause of death an arrhythmia. You would want to call that congestive heart failure. Or if a person dies of influenza in their last day of life when they've been on hospice for two months with stage four colon cancer, you don't want to diagnose influenza as the underlying cause of death. The reason the person was in such a weakened condition and on hospice was colon cancer. So if you will, in April of 2020, I received these documents saying, we want you to change the way you do the death certificates. If you think that whether directly or indirectly COVID might have contributed to the death, go ahead and put that down. And I raised my hand and I said, you don't want to do that. You're going to pay a price for distorting data. I thought that someone would contact me and say, hey, Dr. Jensen, good point. Thanks for pointing that out. That's not what happened. Nobody responded to me. And two months later, my license was being investigated. And I found myself on just a roller coaster ride. And it was something I could never have anticipated. But along with my skepticism, Robin, I have a little bit of a you can push me so far, but then, then I become a little bit of a pit bull. And I didn't like what was happening. So I started looking real closely. And I did my background checks on how much are hospitals getting paid? How much are doctors potentially going to get paid? What are the influences along the way in terms of if we're using COVID-19 casually as a diagnosis, whether it's in a hospital chart? or whether it's on a death certificate. And by the time I got done digging, I had become a heavily investigated physician and I'd become somewhat of a quasi-celebrity on the national news programs and even internationally because I'd become so outspoken. And, and honestly, my life had changed in a way I could never have guessed. I just realized you might be the person to ask about this. So I keep reading that it's a it's an average of about $366,000 that a COVID patient is worth. And I've been trying to put the pieces together. It looks like you get like $13,000 for putting COVID in the chart. 
And for a good while there, the CDC was saying you don't even have to test. Now it looks like most of the people you test are going to be positive, even if they came in with a from a car accident or something. Lots of people are being called a COVID patient who walked in the door with something completely different. So there's 13,000, there's 37,000, I think, for venting them. Where are we getting the total of 366,000? Is there... Is there, like, if a person dies in the hospital, is there some, some kind of bonus? I know there's a 20% bonus if you put them on remdesivir, but that doesn't add up to 366,000 <clears throat> average in, in the state. Is that what, what about putting people on the putting COVID on the death certificate? I mean, of, of my brother just eulogized his best friend last week and he died after the third jab. Two months later, he is full of blood clots and has rapid onset leukemia. And imagine my brother's shock when he shows up to the funeral to eulogize him and the family is saying he died of COVID because FEMA is giving them $9,000 if they'll agree to say that he died of COVID on the death certificate. So I can see a lot of different points along the way where people are given very, very sketchy incentives, including the families, to be willing to move somebody from a vaccine injury column over to the death column. But are, are they being paid for a patient to actually die in their facility? Is there a bounty on that too? Or what? how does that work? I do not believe there's any bounty on having a patient die of COVID. And a death certificate has no impact on reimbursement as well. I think it's important to make some distinctions. You, Your question was a big one, so let me unpack it a bit. First off, a death certificate has virtually nothing to do with any payment. Um, it may have payment implications on a policy basis if you remember when the CARES Act was passed, there were states that had been hit particularly hard with COVID, particularly on the East Coast. And there were members of Congress that advocated for the states that had gotten hit the hardest, which might have been, the argumentation might have been the number of deaths. And they were arguing that they should receive more money because they were getting hit the hardest. The I believe it was the first tranche of dollars distributed with the CARES Act that was distributed by a formula using standard Medicare payments to that given state in the prior year or two. What that would mean would be that because New York State got hit harder than Minnesota in those first months, that it's possible that Minnesota might have gotten a chunk of money that represented an allocation based on their Medicare payments from years prior. And they might have had very few cases of COVID or very few cases of severe COVID compared to New York. So New York congressmen and women were advocating for New York to get paid a, a bigger chunk. And that was incorporated in the second distribution, I believe. So there were different distributions. And then we also have to make a distinction, Robin, between whether or not you're talking about a typical commercial insured person, or if you're talking about a Medicare patient. So if it's a Medicare patient and they're in the hospital with pneumonia, the bundled payment for that hospitalization in the Midwest would be somewhere around $5,000. But if it was a COVID-19 pneumonia instead of just garden variety pneumonia, then 
the reimbursement would be about $13,000. And if a ventilator was used, there would be $39,000. Now, I don't know how you get to 366, but if you have a commercially reimbursed patient or a commercial patient that the hospital will not get reimbursed in a bundled fashion, but will get reimbursed based on their charges, and the patient is in the hospital for a month or two, perhaps on a ventilator, you could certainly get to $350,000 fairly easily. But you did not mention one specific element of reimbursement that is important. And that was the second tranche of dollars distributed in the CARES Act. And it was called the high impact distribution. And a lot of people don't know about that. But from January 1st, 2020, to I think June 10th, 2020, if your hospital hit the threshold of 161 COVID-19 patients, having nothing to do with death, just simply having COVID-19 as one of the diagnoses on the discharge summary, if your hospital was hitting 161 patients, then they were paid approximately $77,000 per patient up to the number of patients that were involved. And it would clearly be above 161 or they would not be participating in that dollar distribution. So they would receive the payment they got from the insurance company. And then in addition, they would receive, I believe it was $77,000 per patient. So if you had 200 patients, you multiply 200 patients times $77,000, you're at 150,000 plus a couple of zeros. That means you're at $15 million for that hospital system. I checked with the Minnesota Department of Health and received a copy of all the healthcare systems or hospitals that hit that threshold in Minnesota. And it was about a dozen. But for some of these hospitals, they hit $25, $30 million of additional income. Now, for the hospital that didn't hit the number, maybe they only had 130 COVID patients, they would receive no bonus payment. And they might not have realized these rules were in place. So this was a tremendous, if you will, windfall for hospitals to find out that they were going to get $25 million potentially because they hit that threshold. Doctors were not necessarily in the loop as these formulas were being determined. And oftentimes, the formulas were established after June 10th had already occurred. Or if they weren't established after June 10th, they were disseminated as the word of the day. And so hospitals might have scurried to find out, did we hit that number? Only to find out that they did not. And they might have thought, darn it, we should have gone ahead and coded a few more patients as COVID-19. Well, you can imagine what that would do downstream. If the government did it once, might they do it again with another program? You always get what you incentivize. So at that point in time, there was a significant push for hospitals to think seriously, how did they want to manage this? And your point, Robin, about making adjustments as to how casually you can make the diagnosis of COVID-19 is huge. Because for a period of time, all you needed to do was establish that there was transmission of the disease 
within your community of involvement, along with one of the three cardinal symptoms, shortness of breath, cough, or fever. And those were all you needed, those two things. You didn't need to have a positive test. And you could establish the presumptive diagnosis of COVID-19, and that counted. And you said, I remember you saying in 2020, I've never seen this in my career as a physician being given permission by the CDC, almost encouraged by the CDC. I'm, I'm using my own words. I can't remember your exact words to not be precise with a diagnosis and just go ahead with it if there's a symptom or two that looks like COVID. And of course, yeah, when you need 161 in a month, you don't want to fall short and have 160 or 159. That creates an incentive for everybody. And whether the doctors and nurses were aware of all these incentives, you were, you were probably doing a little more poking around than your average doctor does. Because uh, it's coming from the hospitalists and they're getting it from the whatever. I would imagine that the administration and the doctors and nurses aren't necessarily always in sync. Am I wrong about that? No, no, you're not wrong about that. Let me clarify. It was not 161 as a threshold in a month. It was from January 1 to June 10th. So you had about okay. five and a half months to hit it. But I think you raise a good point. Hospital administrators have a powerful influence on how doctors in that hospital practice medicine. There's oftentimes called order sets, where if a person comes in with these three symptoms, then instead of us writing out the orders individually, we'll just order the, say someone comes in with cough, fever, and maybe uh, shortness of breath. There might be an order set that would automatically kick into place that would include 25 tests, laboratory tests, x-ray, maybe a CAT scan. In those situations, if in all of your order sets, you add PCR test, and if that PCR test is going to cycle at 45 times, you're going to have a fair amount of false positives, but you're going to get a lot of patients coming in with broken legs and maybe congestive heart failure that will also have COVID-19 added to their hospital record. They'll maybe be isolated from an infectious standpoint, but they will be a COVID-19 patient for that hospital. You know, I don't know if you were involved in this case, but there was a man named Scott Greiner, I believe, in your state who was airlifted to Texas to the care of a Dr. Joe Verone. And in the last week, I've been involved in the case of another gentleman who was in a, a Houston hospital just 15 minutes from Dr. Joe Verone, who we worked all week to put some pressure on that hospital because they didn't feed him for days at a time. He was begging his family for food. He, uh, they didn't, they would take out his IV and just leave it out for days. They didn't allow the family in. So we put a whole ton of pressure on it. I and Stu Peters and a couple other influencers and finally, they let the family in after that. And then they kicked the family out after all the public pressure kind of went away. But anyways, they got, they've gotten him transferred to the care of Dr. Verone. But I have at least 20 messages right now. I haven't even been able to answer most of them saying, this happened to my father too. This happened to my brother too. And, and he's gone now. But they denied him food. Uh, all kinds of problems with changing meds, like changing meds right before they finally get him out of there. It took nine days for that family to get him out of the hospital where they felt he was being abused. 
abused and neglected, the family hung up on, doctors who say, my hands are tied and that's the only explanation they can get. What are you seeing now that's different even than 2020 and 2021? It looks to me, and I could be wrong here, I'm a person who tries to put together what's going on on the high level. It looks to me like the COVID thing is running out of steam. And so now they've got whatever, I don't know what they did to the test that went away and now there's a new one January 1st, but doesn't seem to have any fewer false positives because I have all these people coming to me and saying they slap a a COVID label on my loved one, like this gentleman in Texas. And I know I'm asking you another really big question. So you can just take any part of this that you want, but what in the heck is going on that we have people being slapped with a COVID label who present with something completely different and they won't let them go. We have uh, here in Florida where I live, um, Jeff Childers, who's an attorney says he's seen the hospitals spend tens of thousands of dollars to keep a patient. When the when the family w- sees what's going on, if they're a pretty alert family or a more assertive family, and they say we want our we want our loved one out of here, the hospital fights to keep them. And this makes me wonder about the incentives again. So, what are you seeing going on right now that may have shifted in all the perverse incentives and strange things going on? It's <laughs> a big question, yeah. Robin. I think what I'll say is this. In the interest of full disclosure, I don't do active hospital work now. So I've been an emergency room doctor for hospitals for years and years, but not for a decade. And I have not been seeing patients actively in the hospital for years. So I can't speak to that. To your first question, in terms of Scott Kleiner, Stu Peters did call me the night before and we had a conversation and I don't know if the information that we talked about that night was helpful or not, but I know Stu appreciated the conversation. And I think it was the next day that um, a transfer was able to be affected, but uh, that's all I'd be able to say. Otherwise I had no direct involvement and a lot of the other uh, comments you made, uh, I couldn't speak to because I don't have direct knowledge. Yeah. Okay. I'm looking for clues, uh, what they are exactly doing, but I have so many people telling me the same story or very similar threads that run throughout these stories. And it doesn't feel like good medicine to me. Robin, there are gut-wrenching, heartbreaking stories that obviously are coming to you on a daily basis. And I'm experiencing the same thing. I get requests to get involved across the nation and sometimes outside the borders of our country. And it has been heartbreaking. I remember early on being contacted by a country in Africa and it was one of their public health officials. And they wanted some advice from me because they had heard of me and felt that I was a pragmatic skeptic. And so we talked quite a bit. But some of the advice that comes from your centralized public health organizations frequently isn't doable or isn't, if you will, pertinent for the given situation that people might be in. And and so I did have an opportunity to try to help uh, this country in Africa identify some goals that would be achievable. But um, in terms of being able to speak to 
what's happening in hospitals around the country, uh, I have no firsthand knowledge. Well, if you hear any clues or you have anybody I can interview, I am very keen to put all these pieces together as these policy directives come down and they change and they shift. So that was the first six months, for instance, what you were talking about of 2020. And so it got hospitals in the groove of wanting to recruit people to be COVID patients. It seems like to me, I'm not a doctor, so I can make inferences like that. And it, it just in the spirit of trying to figure out what exactly is going on here, that they seem to be from a hundred different angles, pumping high COVID diagnoses and high COVID deaths. Um, so I'm just trying to figure it out. Um, we, you and I were talking just a, a minute before we got started about, um, you asked me what my background is. And I said, I'm, I'm a vaccine injured person who spent several years completely debilitated after getting a flu jab. And also within a year of that, I gave my son the MMR vaccine and he was in and out of hospitals for over a year, almost lost him many times. So I told you that, and you had a pretty nuanced response that I wasn't really expecting from a family doctor. Cause you know, for years, it, it wasn't that I felt like I had to be quiet to be liked. It's that so many times it just stops the conversation where I'm trying to go to tell people, oh, the reason I detoxify people for a living now is that I would had to detoxify myself after being severely injured by a pharmaceutical injection. I didn't say that back then. In, in the last 10 years of detoxifying people, that's pretty much what we do at Green Smoothie Girl now is help people through that process. But they don't have to necessarily be injured by a vaccine. There's lots of reasons why we need to bring down the toxic body burden and get people functional again because they have so many toxic exposures. But I I was surprised that you had a much more nuanced answer about vaccines. I mean, it seems like all the doctors out there, the first thing they want to tell you is how pro-vax they are. And they want to tell you how many vaccines they and their children got. And it, I got to tell you, for the last 25 years, since my own injury and losing my health for years and having to dig my my baby out of just a complete nightmare um it's really hard because well, let me jump in fast. let me jump in and answer your question so in terms of vaccines i think we have to unpack this topic a little bit first off the world of medicine the world of doctoring has changed I think that today, insurance companies have a lot to do with what typical steps a doctor will take. If a doctor is going to treat a child with bronchitis, it's acceptable in most situations to treat with an antibiotic. But if it's an adult, it may not be. With an adult, it may be that the assumption on the part of the insurance company will be that it's a viral bronchitis. So no antibiotic is indicated. That will change doctors' inclination so that they won't just diagnose bronchitis. They'll also look to see if there's a diagnosis of sinusitis. And in that situation, you can use an antibiotic. So we have more algorithms that drive how doctors are to respond. I think we have a lot of physicians coming out of medical school and residency that have been heavily if you will, prepared to practice medicine in a world that has algorithms established by insurance companies and hospital administrations and even clinic administrators. So having said that, 
vaccines have moved from a topic of discussion with the physician as this is an intervention that we recommend or don't recommend. This is what it's used for. It might be used to prevent polio. This is its effectiveness rate. This is its safety rate. Instead of all the things that come into play with the vaccine being discussed and forming that critical piece called informed consent, there's an algorithm in place. And it says, if the child is five years old, give this vaccination. And so frequently, the physician will just plug the patient and assume the parent will go along and say, okay, well, we got to give this shot, this shot, this shot today. I've never felt comfortable with that because I've always thought that health freedom implies a vaccination bill of rights, and it implies that informed consent has to be a real thing, not just a box to be checked. And so for me, fully vaccinated might well mean different things to different parents, to different patients. My kids, I think, are fully vaccinated, but they received the vaccines that my wife and I thought represented a reasonable and full schedule of vaccines. We put an emphasis on polio, tetanus, diphtheria. But when it came to rotavirus vaccine, or if it came to even, well, the Lyme vaccine, which was withdrawn from the market, these kinds of things we made assessments on and decided yes or no. Influenza vaccines have notoriously been of vacillating efficacy depending upon the given year. Some years, the influenza vaccine might have been reported to be 15% effective. Other years, it might have been 60% effective. I follow that information. When I start watching my influenza patients that I diagnose in December, January, February, I'm always tracking, did they or did not they receive the influenza vaccine? So I think that we need to have a, a thoughtful, contextual discussion with the patient and decide. Is this vaccine for you? Have the conversation. Don't bully or ridicule the patient because we need to remember a vaccine is not a shot of penicillin in your butt because you've got strep throat. It's an intervention that calls for a specific interaction with your immune system. If that happens, wonderful. If it happens in a way where all of a sudden hellfire is let loose, you might end up having a vaccine-injured patient. These are the things we have to do. And we've been inclined since 1990 to use the VAERS data as the canary in the coal mine. And if that canary in the coal mine dies, then we better wake up and say, hold it. What's going on with this vaccine program or with this specific vaccine product? And I don't think this is hard to comprehend. This is what we've always done. In 1976, with the swine flu, we didn't have the VAERS program, but we monitored adverse reactions and deaths. And I believe that in 1976, there were some 50 or less deaths from the swine flu vaccine that were reported to be in association from a time perspective with the administration of the vaccine. And based on that, that swine flu vaccine program was suspended. 
and never restarted. Well, you didn't see doctors and bureaucrats being grounded or having their license investigated because they withdrew their recommendations to use that vaccine. This was a thoughtful, measured conversation, and we did what we thought was best. Somehow in 2022, we're in a position where a thoughtful, measured, reasonable, contextual conversation is not acceptable. Just last Saturday, five days ago, I learned that my American Board of Family Medicine certification is being challenged because I am guilty of denigrating vaccines. Well, I spend over $100,000 a year purchasing vaccines for my patients. And while we don't administer COVID vaccines in our office, the pharmacy right downstairs does, and they do a good job. And more than 90% of my patients are over the age of 75 years old with underlying conditions have been vaccinated against COVID because they chose to do that. Many of those did it on their own. Some of them had conversations with me. We talked about the data. They made their choice. And regardless of what choice they made, I supported their decision. Thank you for supporting medical freedom. And I'm sorry that you've been a victim of all the bullying out there. Um, I've been really impressed. You should teach us a class on how to stay alive on Facebook. Uh, you seem to walk. You seem to walk that line. How I do is that when I have a a post, as soon as it or a live, as soon as it hits like two hundred shares, I delete it just to live to fight another day. But let's talk about let's talk about Minnesota. I was so sad when you didn't run for state senate again. But I'm wondering, like, what was your experience like there? And now you're going for governor. Will you retire as a doctor if you win as governor? What's 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 needs to be fixed in Minnesota that you want to address? That's well, a lot in Minnesota, of I think in Minnesota, we have a governor who seems fairly committed to being a copycat of whatever Governor Cuomo used to do in New York and what Governor Newsom does in California. And consequently, we're seeing Minnesotans not being trusted to make thoughtful responsible decisions for themselves. And that's a huge issue. Let's step back a couple steps. When I was in the Senate, I worked hard. I was disgusted with the lack of intellectual curiosity on the parts of many legislators. And I found the whole process to be disappointing. But I continued to work hard to try to do as much as I could do. But my wife has always been, for me, my best cheerleader. She's always been the wind beneath my wings. So when my wife was facing multiple health crises, requiring multiple surgeries in a short time frame, and she asked me to not run for re-election, there was no decision to be made. I said, I'm not running. And so we took care of business here at home. And I'm happy to report that we've been blessed with a walking miracle in my wife, because she said four major surgeries tumors removed, no cancer, and she's feeling better than she has in years. Having said that, just as Mary was walking through her medical journey, COVID hit. And as I told you earlier, I didn't have any idea that simply 
identifying that what the Department of Health and the CDC was doing with death certificates was going to be problematic on multiple levels and was going to corrupt the data that we rely on, on the federal registrar. Understanding that I had no idea of that, but it gave me this quasi-national profile with a social media following of over a half a million people. People started to push me to run for governor. And my wife and I went through a six-month period of time celebrating her health and wondering what we were to do. And in the end, Robin, on Christmas Day of 2020, we woke up in the morning and felt the powerful words of Esther 414. Have you considered that you're in the position you're in for such a time as this? And we made the decision to run for governor. And so we've been doing that for about a year and we're all in. I'm not going to stop being a doctor. I'm 67. I'm willing to consider retirement when I turn 80. We'll have a discussion then, my wife and I. But otherwise, I can do more than one thing at once and I can multitask and Minnesota needs to heal. And I think I'm the best person to make that happen. And along the way, I can still be taking care of some patients. I'm so glad that she's doing well and that you're able to get back in the fight because we need you. Uh, any words for your Minnesotan? I'm going to try and get the lingo. Minnesotan uh, followers, like what, what your platform is going to be about, like what your top three priorities are going to be as governor? There's no question. In Minnesota, we have seen a poison of lawlessness invade our land. So public safety is a critical issue. We've got to have more cops in the street. But in order to really retrieve public safety, individuals are going to have to be more involved in their own public safety than they've ever been before. And so I've been very outspoken on the fact that we need to have three specific legislative actions come to my desk so I can sign these bills. And they include a stand your ground bill, a constitutional carry bill. And we need to have Castle Doctrine identifying clearly that people can do what they need to do to protect themselves in their home, in their business, and in their automobile. And we need to do that. And that'll be a big step towards public safety, which is one of my four critical platform issues. The second issue would be we need to have school choice for kids. We need to fund children, not broken institutions. Critical race theory is indoctrination. It's not education. And it should be banned. We need also to have secure elections. 46 out of 47 countries in Europe use photo ID for voting. And Minnesota should do the same. And lastly, never again should we allow emergency powers to be politicized as they were in Minnesota, where we saw the governor use them not as a tool to deal with an emergency, but as a political lever. And this should never happen again. We need to tighten that up, rewrite them. And in so doing, we need to not let science be sacrificed at the altar of panic, whereby political science rules the day. And so those are the key platform issues for me. My website is Dr. Scott Jensen, D-R-S-C-O-T-T-J-E-N-S-E-N.com. We're going to work hard to get school choice for kids so that parents can feel like they're empowered to do what's best for their kids. We're going to do photo ID. 
and we're going to get our streets safe again. Robin, it's, it's been a pleasure to join you. And thank you for your voice. Thank you for being the voice of thousands, if not millions of Americans that are critically concerned and are experiencing gut-wrenching stories about what's happened in their families and in their friends and, and that you've been a place that they could go to and know that there's a compassionate ear. Thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. We'll put the uh, link to donate to Dr. Jensen's run for governor. Thank you so very much and God bless you. Hope you win. Thank you, Robin, and have a great day. 